You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we're coming back to you with part two of our examination of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. So, like that introduction implies, this is actually part two. This is going to be a three-part series that we're doing. I realize that when you look at the length, you're probably going to say, wait, couldn't you have just turned this into two parts? Because this is actually a little bit shorter than a normal 42-cast episode. And you are entirely right. But much like The Hobbit, that could have easily been two movies, we're going to needlessly make it three episodes, (laughs) even though it could have been two. And of course, it also goes along with, you know, the three parts of Lord of the Rings to do it that way. So, you know... I enjoy doing it this way. It means there's a little bit less for me to edit. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really, you know, two normal 42 cast episode lengths and I'm just making it three. But, you know, if that means that I can get it out quicker, then so be it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm uh, talking to you all now as Wisconsin freezes. We're getting into the negative temperatures tonight. I always think about another favorite fantasy author of mine, uh, Robert Jordan, and uh, and his works whenever it gets really cold here, because I think about the fact that it's like, will summer ever come? <laughs> you know? It's like, the world is turning to ice, so, you know, yeah, it's... Oh. God, it's so cold here right now. But anyway, yeah, just like last time, I'm not going to have an outro with this episode. We'll just segue straight into the music. And then next time we will actually have our, you know, conclusion to the episode, an actual outro as we continue to move on. But with all that being said, it's time to return to the podcast and we're going to start back where we already were in the conversation last time but just before that we're going to pause for this promo from another fine podcast howdy this year the earth station one podcast will experience its favorite geek out moment with episode number 500 that's over nine years of nerdy pop culture reviews interviews and con reports Join the celebration with Mike and Mike each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite media player. We can also be found all over social media or at esonetwork.com. Peace. Peace. And we're done. We're done. in your hands to break. 
but yeah, getting back to what Angie was talking about with Tolkien's use of language and the lyrical writing, there's a lot of really cool things here as well because, you know, Tolkien took the time to first create whole languages, you know, for the dwarves, for the elves, realizing the fact that the elves had split up into different groups, so even their three languages for the elves, all those different kinds of things where he used his knowledge of linguistics to create languages that could really work. People can write things in the different forms of Elvish today, you know, using his notes. And, you know, that's really cool. But there's also this fact that he realized that languages change in both time and place. So when you're reading the story and when you're getting to different locations, people have different vernacular and jargon and accents, just like they would in a fully, you know, in a real world. And when you read things that people wrote in the past or whatever, it's slightly different there, too. So it creates this whole world that exists in both time and space that I don't think I've ever seen anyone else come close to doing this. Probably the closest I've ever seen is Robert Jordan with the Wheel of Time series, and even he doesn't go to this length. But, I mean, so Stephanie and Brie, is that something that ever jumped out at you guys? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Like, I mean, I've always been fascinated with languages, and I grew up in Arizona. I'm obviously your typical white, blonde American girl. Like, I only spoke English until, like, learned Spanish in high school, and then I realized how cool languages could be, and why don't we teach our kids at a younger age, which I honestly still believe we should. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I went to college, I took a little bit of Dutch and linguistics. And I think, honestly, the only reason I did do Dutch and linguistics was because part of the reason I loved Tolkien so much was because of the languages thing. And I was like, wow, he knew a lot of languages. Like, this this is really cool stuff. And he incorporates it so well, especially like the fact, like you were saying, there's not just like different dialects and like accents like mentioned in the story. It's also, if you remember, like, he does mention how, like, the black speech is an older form of Elvish, which is another thing that's super cool to me, because unless you, like, understand language and the ways they develop, obviously the English we speak now is far different than Old English. So it's it's just really fascinating that he even cared to include that you know in his book like oh well this language is is not really spoken anymore but people still know about it so i'm going to put it in there (laughs) so the language aspect is definitely one of my favorite parts about the series similarly i think i already had a strong interest in languages and linguistics at that point particularly the development of english from old english to modern english and everything that predated old english already Um, And I think that actually his background as a linguist that was very obviously into the stories, I think that was actually one of the things that really made me so intrigued in the books is because it wasn't only a book, a book series about this amazing epic adventure, but there was also that second layer of storytelling from just the languages themselves and as something that I already thoroughly enjoyed and something that I heavily considered going into for my degree in college. I only dropped doing linguistics because I couldn't handle studying two languages at the same time. Um, (laughs) I had such a strong interest in linguistics, though, that that was a very interesting part of the story that you don't see. And I can't of any other story where you really even see that in. Sure, there are other stories that have created 
fictional languages that are complete languages. I mean, how many people are there that actually can speak Klingon? Obviously, <laughs> people do right. this. Yeah. But they're never really a part of the story. They're just an addition to the story. Whereas the story actually was written to help with the language. Right. It's almost character. Well, it they are almost characters themselves within the world of Middle Earth. Yeah, I mean, Tolkien actually was part of a club where they would, after you know, uh, after teaching, would get together and they would not only share their prose works, but they would also share their translations. You know, they would take you know elder sagas or whatever that they were working on, and they would actually translate them and read for the whole you know group and whatnot. So to him, this was fun. You know, this was you know his passion, and so it translates into the story very well. I think one of the things that always kind of stuck with me about Tolkien was the fact that he and his cousins had were creating languages in their tweens and teens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I was a fairly imaginative child, but nothing near that level of, of interest in language. And um, I love the fact that he was constructing these languages and kind of built the world of Middle Earth ar around them. He was creating, you know, he's creating stories that would inform the language and how the language developed this language he was constructing from nothing and I just I find that so impressive even though I don't have the linguistic background myself I think to appreciate it fully. Nathan I have a feeling you'd be able to correct me if I'm wrong on this but uh, didn't Tolkien actually say something about the fact that these languages are useless without a people and a history to support the language and that's part of why he developed Middle Earth? Yeah he, he thought that it was useless. Uh, another thing though uh, Angie just reminded me from her comment that, yeah, the whole thing that got him started on thinking about languages, that is uh, where he was living out in the country, the train would come by on the way to Wales, and he would see all these Welsh names on the side of the train, and if you know anything about Welsh, it's not a lot like English at all. There's a lot, they're it's, very long, it's right, it's very long words with lots of vowels and things, and so that so fascinated him about, you know, who's using these names, what do they mean? what is all this that that's what he, he said later in interviews was what sort of got his mind thinking about language and you know as he's walking through the woods and playing like any kid does he's also imagining like languages and you know how people would speak and what words you would come up with for these things you know out in the woods. so yeah i mean very imaginative child like angie was saying but, you know, the other thing, and I think this kind of speaks in with how he had sort of a disdain for what he called fairy stories, is that he didn't go for, like most kids, if they're kind of develop some poetry or whatever, you know, they'll go for rhyming, you know, limericks, you know, kind of simple kind of poems. But that's not what he was interested in. He was in the use of language and making it sound interesting, making it, you know, help in telling a story. And that's why, you know, like Angie, I don't have much time for most poetry, but Tolkien is one of those guys that when a poem is in there, it's okay. It's kind of like how I enjoy Shakespeare also, because he also could write in a poetic style, but it's not that sort of really annoying, sort of simple kinds of poems that, you know, you hear a lot of when you're learning poetry in school that I just never was very interested in. The other thing, though, I mean, this is what I don't think Tolkien is getting enough credit for, is he's pretty much the reason why we have the modern fantasy. Oh, he's totally the father of modern high fantasy. Right. Yeah. And I've actually seen him being credited with that a lot more, especially with the popularity of George R.R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire, too. 
a lot of people are starting to get more into the high fantasy genre again. And I'm seeing Tolkien pop up a lot more as being credited for developing this type of fantasy world. I mean, I think he almost suffered from being too successful in that regard. I mean, as a kid, his world had already permeated society to such an extent that I didn't realize that it was the originator of it. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. the idea of what dwarves and elves are and dragons and that came from him as a, you know, in modern culture, but it, it had already been there so long at that point that when I started, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't realize that the influence that it had, it was something that I had to kind of go back and learn as an adult that, you know, these things didn't really exist in the popular culture before him. Yeah, because I mean, elves were like little Keebler sized things. You know, that's, that's again, like what he was talking about with, you know, what the fairy story was to him. They were these silly little impish creatures. They weren't warriors that could take part in battle and that kind of thing, where that was what, you know, interested him a lot more. And so, yeah, the whole conception that we have, which, yes, he was pulling from Norse mythology, which had a lot of the things that show up in his story and in modern fantasy, but it was something that was not really present. I don't know of anyone else who was doing any kind of fantasy similar to that as a contemporary or even before him. You read some of the other fantasies of the period, like uh, The Once and Future King or Lewis with the Narnia stuff, and it's completely different. But nowadays, you can pick up dozens, probably hundreds of different fantasy series that have used the Tolkien model and the world is very similar as far as like what elves can do and what they're like, what dwarves can do and what they're like, and all that kind of stuff. And not only other novels and such, going back to one of our five questions questions with all the video games, that is now the standard for the elf class and the dwarves. I mean, even Dungeons and Dragons right. and stuff like that. Yeah. He created what we now view as fantasy. And honestly, I had never thought of it like, uh, oh, shoot, was that Andy or Bree who just said that about how when we were younger, it was just so permeated in the culture that it was hard to even acknowledge that Tolkien was the creator of this. I had never thought of it like that before, but I have seen because I'm very much into the fantasy genre. Mm-hmm. And I have seen him being credited for it a lot more in recent years than I ever have in the past. Yeah, I um, mean, it's one of those things where I think because of the prevalence of the movies, his uh, Tolkien's main contribution has kind of almost been diminished, which is ironic because they're adaptations of his work. And I don't think that, like Angie said, that people realize truly that he was the originator of it just because there's so much fantasy out there that someone has to actually think of the timeline to go, oh yeah, Tolkien was first, wasn't he? But yeah, I mean, that's good. I mean, certainly if more people are acknowledging it now and talking about it, because that's something that I didn't come to until fairly later in life when I started thinking about it and realizing that, yeah, all this came from him. You know, I mean, Dungeons, it might have been just because I was, you know, learning D&D or something, but, you know, realizing that so much of the D&D world, there's many D&D worlds, but sort of the core one is Tolkien-influenced. And realizing that, you know, that working your way backwards, that's where all this kind of started. So, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there because I do think it's one of the reasons why it's well worth the time for someone to check out. In addition to the fact that it's just a complete world in a way that no one else ever does. I personally do like reading mythology, so even the Silmarillion's okay. I know it's kind of dry and a lot of people don't like it. But to me, it's like, well, it's no different than reading, like, Edith Hamilton's mythology or something like that. I have mixed feelings with the Silmarillion. No. I enjoy the story, it's just hard to read. 
No, I, I get it. I mean, it's definitely a much drier thing. And that's the other thing. I mean, do you guys... I mean, Stephanie, you kind of touched on this, but it's the thing that I hear all the time, that Tolkien is boring. Yeah, there's all these sort of side comments and things where sometimes, you know, but a lot of that he relegates to appendices that you don't have to read. There is that sort of first chapter in Fellowship where he kind of, like, says, like, this is what the world is, and that's a fairly longish chapter, I think. But a lot of that ancillary material really isn't, I don't know, I don't feel like the story, I just reread it, like, two years ago. And I was even looking specifically for that, and I didn't feel like it dragged really badly. I only feel it drags when we get to Tom Bombadil. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I think for me, this again comes back to I think the modern era and people's attention spans are have been continually shrinking since the time that (laughs) Tolkien wrote this I mean when he wrote this TVs were were only in like what is it like 14 or 20 percent of American homes in the 40s and it slowly grew over the 50s and 60s and like of course if you wanted to read something besides the paper or magazines you read books and they were longer like this and that was fine and I think con- people kind of forget the context it was written in. Not to say that's an excuse for people who don't like it, but that's where I also think it's important for you to know the people you're talking to about these books. And hopefully it's on a personal level too, right? right. Like hopefully when you, you know this person, you know, as a friend or family member or something. But I would never want to tell someone that I know to read Lord of the Rings if I don't think they're actually going to appreciate it, at least a little bit. I know a friend of mine, she actually is a young adult author now. She, I told her, was she's like, I love literature. I'm going to read this someday. And I was like, well, you should. And I'm like, but you're used to like the young adult stuff. So just to warn you, it might be kind of long for you. And she's like, okay. She was the exact same kind of person who was like, this is so boring. And I was like, can you appreciate any of it though? And she's like, well, yeah, he did really good storytelling and like blah, 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 but so boring. And I was like, well, okay, at least you found a little bit of interest in it. But I think that for me is, that personally for me is where I kind of like draw the line. I'm like, okay, I can see why some people think it's boring, but I try to warn those kinds of people ahead of time if they haven't read it yet. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of a personal preference thing. It's also just the fact that we're in a completely different time period and we're used to different media formats. So it's kind of a fine line to a certain point. Yeah, I have a hard time figuring out why people think it's boring because i think i mentioned this earlier i just found myself so engrossed in this story and into this world where even in the parts that are just a lot of exposition it was still creating this picture in my mind well this is what's kind of interesting to me on this subject in general is that you know Angie, Bree, and Stephanie, you're all millennials. I'm Gen X. But, you know, when we talk about, like, well, remember, modern people can't read this, I'm like, well, or, or, or they're not used to this, I'm like, but what makes us any different than our contemporaries, right? You know, I mean, because it's like, obviously, we all appreciate it. But, you know, and then that's where I went, you know, because, Bree, this is not the first time I've heard that argument. But that's, that's what's kind of interesting to me is that I grew up with the same media, that all of you grew up with, because I'm very late Gen X. So, you know, why is it, you know, that I can read this story and appreciate it? And believe me, I watched a lot of TV. It wasn't like I was a sequestered kid that was just reading books all the time. And so I, I was used to the pacing and whatever of, of, you know, video and whatnot. But for whatever reason, this book, 
this book series, you know, speaks to me. So I don't know. Do any of you have any thoughts on that? If you guys don't mind me mentioning one more thing here. Sure, no, go ahead. <laughs> I actually feel... I feel pretty strongly on this, and it's very ironic considering I don't have children yet, but I think a lot of it has to do with parenting and the education system. Mm. I think when our education system kind of started to go downhill, you know, I guess from my research, that's sort of like in the 70s, 80s era. Mm. I could be wrong. That's fine. I, I might be wrong. But there's kind of a loss of interest in reading. There has been for quite a while. There was even before that, I believe, because I think it was what, there was an episode of Happy Days where the Fonz got a library card and then suddenly library card like signups like exploded like 200% or something that week. No, I've never heard that. That's awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's, I'm probably wrong with the stat, but it's very true. Like that happened in American history. So I think a lot of it unfortunately has to do with just that perspective cultural perception and education that we were getting that suddenly it was not cool to like this longer stuff. Mm. And ironically, my theory is because that coincided with the growth of television and movies, I think people were just trained in a sense to not like longer stuff like this Mm. and taught that it was boring. And I think because there's been a resurgence of interest in Tolkien stuff. And now that, of course, like there's Game of Thrones and all that, I think now we're we're kind of starting to come back to it being like, no, 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 this stuff isn't boring. It's just a different format than we grew up with, you know? Yeah, no, I that, that's a really good point, actually. You know, because it sounds like we were all readers as children. Is, is that correct statement? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're all readers as children, so we're already sort of predisposed to it. I didn't like reading in school just because I felt like the books that they were giving me to read in school weren't interesting, or in some cases were below the level that I was already reading myself. I had that same issue, actually. My middle school literature teachers, when we had our self-reading projects, Mm -hmm. she was always mildly concerned at the books I would choose because my dad let me read anything out of his library. Mm -hmm. So I'm reading all of these sci-fi and fantasy books that are intended for adults at the age of 12. And sometimes the content was really mature. <laughs> so my teacher would get really concerned about me doing book reports on this. But uh, hey, I got to do a book report on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and mutilated a Ken doll and a Barbie doll to make a Zapod beetle box for it. <laughs> nice. I remember you telling me that. <laughs> Yeah, I I found some of the books I had to read for school mildly patronizing, so that's why I didn't like, but I was always bringing my own books to school that I would read, like, if there was ever a time when, like, other kids were still on the tests or whatever, and I had finished it, so I'd pull out my book or whatever. Reading is always something that I've really enjoyed. I did the same thing, and... My dad only recently realized that my teachers were ever questioning the content that they were giving me to read Mm. while thanking my parents. (laughs) I guess she never really addressed it to my parents, but she would definitely do it to me. Like, are you sure you should be reading that? (laughs) But, I mean, I I always tested really high in literature. And if it weren't for my language and grammar and all that stuff, my... As I'm talking about my good skills with language, my whole sentence <laughs> comprehension went right down the top. <laughs> if it weren't for the fact that I, I truly do have a good grasp on language, despite that sentence. Oh gosh, my ACT or STD. Oh my god, I need to shut up. Wor- words <laughs> is good. Would have sucked if it weren't good for language. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, 
let's get I even tried saying that because wow, that was atrocious. <laughs> I heard something about an STD in there too. I was getting a little concerned, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to say S A T and A T and it came out S T D. <laughs> That's okay. You've taken all the focus off of Angie being a creeper, so you know it's okay. <laughs> yes, I'm free. <laughs> Well, to go back, I just have one one additional point. I, I agree with you guys. One thing I've kind of been thinking about, though, is Nathan, when you brought up you know Shakespeare kind of having that melodic sort of lyrical writing mm-hmm. style as mm-hmm. well. I don't know that people picking up the, the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings are necessarily expecting that. Because when we describe these books, and I'm guilty of this too, you, know, you talk about the fantasy story that it is. And so I don't know that people pick it up expecting epic poetry and expecting that part of the joy of reading it is the words themselves and so you do i I, i'm trying real hard to remember the beginning of the hobbit but i know in the lord of the rings there's a whole segment to the beginning that's very expository that's kind of doing a setup Mm -hmm. and it takes a little Mm -hmm. while to get to the action and i'm wondering if people that's kind of setting their expectation of the whole book at that point that they're like well i thought this was a fantasy story and they're looking just for that main storyline and they're kind of missing some of the the point of the books which is i mean he was a linguist it's about the language Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of people who fail to grasp the entire concept of what the plot is going to be too like my boyfriend and a few of his friends they can't understand how i can love this series so much when it's four books and like six movies about a bunch of short people walking, and that's it. And I'm like, oh my god, there's so much more than walking in all of this. Well, yeah, that's that sort of pithy Kevin Smith thing from Clerks, too. But, you know, that's... I don't think even Kevin Smith really feels that way. I think he was just something funny that he threw into the movie. Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of people did grasp, grab onto the joke and take it with actual substance instead of it being a it, it's like a describe your favorite movie plot as badly as possible right. <laughs> um, <laughs> which uh, oddly enough every time that comes up i do use the lord of the rings as my example <laughs> there is so much more to the story than just a bunch of walking and then just a whole bunch of exposition yeah. it, it's just people don't look beyond that to really try to appreciate that there is an epic tale here being told. Well, yeah, the whole idea of the return of the king has nothing to do with the walking going on of of Frodo to Mordor. I mean, that's it's part of that for a while, but then that branches off as a whole other, you know, major aspect of the story. You Mm -hmm. know, so yeah, all of that. I mean, Sauron and Isengard and the Ents, you know, rising up against him and all of that. It's the whole other, you know, side to the story. And when we do get to those really intense part of the stories, he does such a great job describing the scene. And I can still vividly remember the first time I read Frodo and Shelob and Mm. Sam coming to the rescue. I had gotten to that chapter when I was like, okay, I'm going to read for like 15 more minutes. And then I had to conclude that whole part of the story. And I remember just being on the edge of the bed the whole time, really engrossed in this whole situation and i hate (laughs) but i was still like this is such a great great tale right here just as part of frodo sam and sheila was phenomenal and yeah Yeah. 
uh, so many people just give up on the exposition in the beginning and concerning hobbits. And it's like, no, there's so much more. Just get past the fact that you think this is just a bunch of walking. You know, it's funny you bring up Sheila because I can't remember a lot of Dad, you know, actually reading to us. Like I said, I can remember the visual of it. But, you know, actually, but yeah, the Sheila stuff. Oh, I remember. <laughs> How would you like that before you go to bed? You know, six-year-old kid, you know? (laughs) Giant spider. (laughs) Sucking all your blood out, you know? (sighs) Yeah. But he did such a great job with that Mm -hmm. portion of the story. Yes. No, I, I completely agree. It's engrossing. And in fact, now, now that I want to sort of branch out into the movies and the adaptations, you know, one of the things that I still think was a mistake, even though I understand the reason that they did it, is I still think the two towers should have ended with that, rather than leaving um, it for the third movie with the Shelob. I, yeah, I might, I think I agree with you on that, for sure. Because that is such a perfect cliffhanger for the it story, really is yep. what's going to happen to Frodo and Sam, you know? <laughs> Uh, this is this is really bad because that is really the. I mean, it's. I mean, if you look at other tri- famous trilogies, look at Star Wars. You know, that is your Luke's got his hand cut off and has been completely defeated. You know, Han's been frozen and shipped off somewhere. That is your downbeat ending for the middle part of your story that you really want to leave it there. Of you know that we're you no. Know, this this is really bad. You know, can we you know pull things you know back for the third installment? Although visually. They think they did wonderfully with Shelob and uh, that whole You know, scene. now that you mention that, I actually am suddenly remembering the first time I saw it in theaters. I thought they were going to end at that point, and I too was disappointed that they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, Stephanie, I, I now that you mentioned that, I remember sitting in the theater too, being like, the you know, Gollum's whatever line he has, and then the screen pulls up, and you see, you know, Mordor approaching, and then it goes to the black screen, and it was like, Wait, what the hell? Right. Are you serious? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, by that point, by the time The Two Towers came out, I had already read The Hobbit and The Whole Lord of the Rings multiple times in just like that year period. And yeah, I really do remember thinking that that was where they were going to end it. And it would have been perfect. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that Peter Jackson says is that leaves Sam and Frodo very little to do if you get to that point. But that's because he cut out all the stuff that Sam and Frodo were doing in Return of the King. There was actually a whole long section of them going through Mordor and all the things they encounter, which in the movie version, it's kind of like, yeah, Sam really quickly gets Frodo away from the orcs. Then they sort of dress up and pretend to be orcs. And then they're kind of already there, you know? (laughs) And part of the problem with that idea, too, is... I have a feeling at that point, Jackson and the team had already decided, you know, exactly what would be in Return of the Jedi. Or, <laughs> oh my God. This is a, that is not the same franchise at all. <laughs> Return of the King. But, like, obviously they knew they were going to pretty much cut out the scouring of the Shire. Mm-hmm. And I think if they had kept that in and shortened Two Towers a little bit to end with Shelob, I think it could have worked. Yeah. But obviously they had chosen at that point not to do that. So. Well, the thing that I really like about the Scouring of the Shire and why I would have liked to have seen it is it shows that the Hobbits don't need everyone else. They've, yeah, they've become heroes in their own right. You know, And so they're able to handle this crisis without being like, oh crap, we got to go. You know, back out of the Shire, call Aragorn, have him send some people to help us out. It's like, no, I mean, they've already done it. You know, I mean, Merry and Pippin, you know, are, 
have, have progressed as characters, and Sam's a lot stronger from having, you know, supported Frodo through all this. Well, Sam's the true hero of the story anyways, so... Well, it's 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 very true. I mean, without him, Frodo would have been dead several times over. He, he wouldn't have even been able to shoulder it psychologically. He's also the only ring bearer who never fell to the temptation of the ring. Yep. Yeah. No, it's true. Sam is so underappreciated. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And there's something really nice about that. I mean, one of the things that bothered me about a lot of the fandom that grew up around the Lord of the Rings movies is the requirement that so many people had for Sam and Frodo to be lovers. That, oh, you know, this is uh, my fan fiction, you know, that they're lovers. Like, why can't they just be, like, really good friends, you know, where with a lot of respect? I think part of where that ended up happening, too, because you read the books and you know there's a huge age difference between Frodo mm. and Sam right off the bat. But the movies, Elijah Wood still today looks like he's 12. Right. So... <laughs> They made the Hobbits as a whole very childlike, where in fact, like, Frodo's in his 40s. Yeah, they all look very much the same age. Mm. And even though that relationship was still there of, like, a mentor and, I mean, it was really more of like a uncle and nephew type relationship that you saw in the books. And that was still present in the movies. But a lot of people, because of how close they were in age, they just seemed to completely grab that whole relationship a different way. Right. I'm really glad I missed out on that. I didn't know that was a thing. I probably should have assumed that was a thing, but I didn't experience it. It really bugged me in the fandom, too, because, I mean, I tend to fall headfirst into any fandom I get into. Uh, Nathan can attest to this on many different things. Um, But I, I did get really involved in the fandom, but so many of the people who were in these groups were only fans of the movies, and... I was like, oh, did you even bother reading one chapter of the book? Because you see that their relationship is much more based off of mutual respect and camaraderie than it is any sexual tension. And it's just, I I, I don't know. I think that's actually a really good point, Stephanie, because part of the reason I had a problem with it And I didn't really connect that until you just said it. But I think part of the reason I had a problem with that was because it was just a bunch of new fans. I don't like calling fans any bad names because I think that's just unhelpful to everyone. But I think new. Yeah. (laughs) You're a geek and you're not a geek. Blah, blah, blah. I hate, I absolutely. Oh, I hate that too. So riled up by that. So that's why I'm going to be polite to these fans. I call them new fans because, like me, I'm sure some people are tempted to only watch the TV show or the movie and not go to the book. And I feel like that's where a lot of that culture of Sam and Frodo are gay came from. Now, obviously, not all of it did. But now that you mention it, I think that makes a lot more sense because when you read the books, you're so right. Like you can just tell, no, they just are very good friends. And going back to this, the whole Tolkien based on his wartime experiences, obviously he, he actually said quite a bit about how close you become with your, your brothers in the trenches, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's a big connection there that a lot of younger people, and especially I would say those who have no desire to understand military or war. They just don't understand that connection at all. I've never even been in a war. I don't want to be, but I'm willing to admit I have no idea how deep that connection could be, you know? Right. Also, I mean, he lost people close to him, you know, and I think that that informs a lot of the writing is that that sense of grief that it doesn't, it doesn't ever leave. I, I can also see, though, why fans did want to cling to that relationship because there is a 
I guess it is sort of a problem with Tolkien's original books here that it was about a whole bunch of presumably straight men. You didn't have a lot of representation really in there, so that's why in the movies, Arwen suddenly has a bigger portion of a role, because there are no real women that do a whole heck of a lot until we meet Aeolin. And even there, her role is still substantially smaller than other people in this story. And the only relationships you see at all are heterosexual. And so there were people who definitely enjoyed this story and wanted to see some sort of representation for themselves. And this is something I don't think I personally understood when this whole, oh my God, Frodo and Am thing was going on. I can understand why people wanted them to be a couple, but it's just so canically not there if you read the actual text. And I don't think it's even there in the movies, but it's easier to pick up on the subtext with that, I think, because the characters appear to be so close in age, where they don't have that senior and... What's the word I'm looking here to compare with senior? (laughs) Junior. (laughs) Oh my god, yeah, that is it. (laughs) that type of feeling in the movie where they are just Sam is looking up to Frodo as his junior and still helping him and taking care of him and they do become very close because of these horrendous trials they keep going through. Well, and and here's another part of it too, which I know why because, you know, Jackson was trying to step away from the class system also, which, you know, Sam was an employee. You know, Sam is the gardener. And, you know, that is something where, you know, in in those days, you know, in the 30s and 40s, you know, a rich, a wealthy, you know, man and his butler, they could have a close relationship. I mean, you look at like the Bruce Wayne Alfred kind of relationship, but you have respect and you can be close to each other, but there is that separation also. Jackson, in any of the movies, Hobbits or Lord of the Rings, he never really does emphasize on the fact that the Bagginses are known for being super rich and wealthy Hobbits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's, oh, great. My neighbor is shoveling with the, er, not shoveling, <laughs> he's sweeping with the shovel again. Okay, shutting my window again. Um, <laughs> yeah, Jackson never really points out that both Bilbo and Frodo are very wealthy and well-known and respected because of their wealth. Nope, that's, that's very true. And, and they definitely wanted to step back from that, but that is, I think, part of the reason... That's part of what they're not seeing is that, you know, in in the sort of time period that Tolkien's writing in, you know, the fact that you could have a someone who's ostensibly a servant actually like you, you know, was not, you know, like nowadays it's it's very much like, well, the idea is, oh, well, that's horrible. You have a butler, you're oppressing this person, you know? Yeah. It's like, or you're, you know, and, and you know, in, in Tolkien's, you know, era, you know, that wasn't part of, you know, what society was thinking. It was, you know, this is a mutually beneficial arrangement. You know, you've got too much money. You give it to this person, they do your gardening, you know. And that's that my absolute biggest problem with modern day criticism. I mm. do not care if someone sees something or interprets something differently than I do. Um, mm. I, in fact, I think that's a good thing that brings different discussions to the table, all of that. But what I absolutely hate about modern criticism is that they will pull past works, uh, you know, I would say from anything older than the last 20 years or so, and they will literally just rip it to shreds because it doesn't have anything that we're used to talking about in modern day. And it's like, well, that's not fair. You're f- totally throwing out the context. It is not fair for you to be like, they, Sam and Frodo were gay. No, they weren't in the original book. If you want them to be in your interpretation, fine, I don't care. But there's so many people who are using that whole like, 
Sam and Frodo thing being gay or Tolkien was sexist because he didn't have enough women in his books, blah, blah, blah. It's like, all right, I understand where you're coming from, but you're acting like your interpretation is the Holy Grail and it's not. And I, I cannot stand when people do that about Tolkien stuff. Well, and the thing is, look at other books that were available at the time. There wasn't a lot of strong female characters you know, in the books. I, I was actually going to bring up Eowyn as, you know, a, again, an influence of, of Tolkien's love of Norse mythology, where women could be warriors, and, you know, basically taking them out of the water and making them cavalry and you know, horseback riders. But that's the thing. I mean, Eowyn is very much that Viking warrior woman. You know, I'm not going to let the men tell me what to do. I'm just as much a warrior as they are. I'm going to ride into battle, and I'm going to do, you know, and the whole thing of, you know, no man can defeat... Uh, the king of the Nazgul, I am no man. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and that's very Shakespeare also. The whole society of the Rohirrim did also value women more than some of these other cultures that you saw within Middle-earth mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. I mean, we did also have Galadriel, who was actually a ring bearer, and she was regarded as a ruler. But mm -hmm. she also had a very small part in it. Eowyn definitely had the biggest role as an actual developed character who did anything in the story well yeah and the sympathies of tolkien are definitely with her yeah because you yeah. know you get the whole thing of her feeling like i'm being shut off to the side and that's not right because i have the capability and whatnot and so i actually thought it was very progressive when i was reading it just yeah. recently yeah, i was like this is very this is very good well, and, and part of my problem with people being like, oh, the women, he didn't have a lot of women and some of them had small roles. For me, it's a lot more about the quality of the roles in, in stories than it is who exactly they are or like what gender they identify with or anything like that. Granted, I'm not saying let's not keep pushing for diversity or whatever. I'm just saying that when we're like, oh, there were only like three women in Lord of the Rings and none of them really did anything. I'm like, what are you talking about? Eowyn was huge. Granted, you're right, compared to all what all the other men were doing in the stories, she didn't, like, beat out any of the other men's, like, feats or anything, but she was a massive, massive part of, of the second half. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, and they're like, oh, but, but there wasn't enough. And I'm like, what do you want more of from this? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I guess I'm a little bad giving all the credit to Eowyn for the Witch King because, uh, oh crap, was it Mary or Pippin? I can't remember. But what of Mary. It was Mary? Okay. Yeah. I sometimes get the two of them confused. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, she had a huge part in the story. Galadriel guided everybody and helped them figure out exactly what their role should be. Arwen's really the only character I can't really say too much about. Yeah, I mean, Arwen definitely, I mean, they definitely beefed up her role for the movie. And, you know, in the, act, in the book, she doesn't do a whole lot, but... If Tolkien had wrote a book that is as diverse as what people are used to reading now, it wouldn't have sold in the 1950s. Definitely not. People would have found it shocking, and it would have been quickly, you know, tucked away somewhere and never read. As is, they made it, he made it so that it was shocking that you have hobbits, humans, elves, dwarves, and wizards all working together. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the, the thing that I have trouble with is that it's... Uh, in a lot of ways, a war story. And I just mm -hmm. feel like if I went to a movie theater and watched a World War II movie and half of the characters were, half the soldiers were women and half of them were like Hispanic and, and like, and I don't know, like Mongol. It's it's one of those things I'm all for diversity. I, I think more of it's better. But within a context, it's going to get to a point where it's ridiculous. Half of the soldiers in any given unit in World War II were not women. 
So putting them there is out of place and weird. And if you're writing a medieval combat story, having half your characters be women would be weird. I yeah. Don't, yeah. I mean, I don't have a problem with that at all. You know, and I feel like if the story focused more on politics, maybe, then maybe Galadriel would have a bigger part. I, it's... Well, that's you, when you just I don't get the opinion of the song Fire of Ice. Or Song yeah, of Ice I, Fire. I always forget what order it is. I think it's... Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, the one in that story played a huge role, but it's also in a politics role. Now, um... I promised Angie that I would give her the forum to talk about something, and since we talked about Eowyn, the <laughs> character that she's closely tied with is Faramir, which which in the book is is a wonderful section when oh, they're both Faramir. in the Houses of Healing. Yeah. And I really, I really hate the fact that the movie just skips over that entirely, and it's relegated to like her and Faramir holding hands at the end. I think yeah, it's just like oh yeah, eyes at each other. And <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> But, you know, some uh, something that Angie and I both find problematic in the movies is the characterization of Faramir. So, Angie, you have the forum. And I'm sure I can get on board with this, too. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, I'm going to back up just a little bit. Okay. Because, and you can, you're welcome to disagree with me on this, but to me, one of the biggest themes of The Lord of the Rings is this idea that humanity, because it is changeable and flexible, survives. And the rest of the races, because they are unchanging and static, they fade away. They leave. They go to the Grey Havens. They become something else um, or die off. Oh, wait. Wrong show. (laughs) (laughs) But so that to me was, was basically one of the most important themes in the book is that ability of humanity to be good or be evil and kind of determine their own destiny. So mm-hmm. I look at all characters in that show up, like Tom Pompadil, <laughs> <laughs> as kind of examples of these types of character traits. And Faramir, because he is contrasted with his brother and doesn't take the ring and looks at Eowyn and falls in love with her for her and lets her be her in comparison to, say, Aragorn, who kind of patronizes her. Faramir is so important as this symbol of progress in humanity and this is why humanity kind of ends up being dominant and and winning basically at the end and so to have the movie kind of change that entire storyline where he does want to take the ring and he does want to be just like his brother and um that bothered me quite quite a bit so that actually was the one rage inducing part of the film um i enjoyed the vast majority of the rest of it um but because i do i look at you know and this is why i have a hard time with this you know there's not enough powerful women or women are relegated to the secondhand role you know i feel like eowyn and faramir and their relationship is kind of tolkien pointing us forward um and there's that note there like we are changing this the way that things have been is is not the way they have to remain we can move forward and i love that concept and so i was so offended by the movie just glossing over it i've never thought of it that way I mean, I, I totally agree with you that their relationship should have been a bigger part of the, the movies, but I literally never thought of it in the context of them being the progressive example of how society or humans have to change in order to survive and improve. That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, I had never thought of it in those terms either, Angie, but I completely agree after you're saying it that that makes a lot of sense because, you know, both the dwarves and the elves, you know, fade away. You know, I mean, we don't know exactly what happens to the dwarves, but the elves all leave humanity stays and it is true i mean they're the ones that change and you know can adapt and everything and you know to me it seemed like you know this version of faramir was just weak 
You know, I mean, because he he knew that the you know possessing the ring was wrong, but he still was going to take it to his father because he wanted to be loved by his father the same weird way that Boromir was. Right, he essentially was the same as Boromir in the movie, which, you know, why include him at all? <laughs> right, well, I mean, he was a weaker... Ver- I mean, he was someone, yeah, I mean, he was basically trying to be Boromir. He was someone that looked at Boromir as what he should be. And, you know, yeah, the whole thing... Uh, it, it seemed like a lot of the reasoning behind it was to create that sort of filler in the two towers of Sam and Frodo being taken by him just so that it wouldn't end with Shelob, you know, uh, attacking Frodo. Because I feel like that whole part of the two towers is just filler. I I believe I read that that was the case. They needed some Sam and Frodo stuff on their journey, so they added it. But I don't think they did the story any services (laughs) for doing that. Right, because I mean, and you even read the story of, you know, the the battle, uh, you know, around Minas Tirith. And, like, Faramir's the one rallying the troops, because everybody loves Faramir, because everyone knows Faramir is the soldier, you know, the, he's the, the captain that, that, you know, he cares about the troops. He's the one that inspires them, because they know he, he won't send them to do anything that he wouldn't do himself, and stuff like that, so he's that sort of inspirational figure. And Denethor's the only one that doesn't appreciate him for his awesomeness. Right, exactly. And, you know, I mean, reading all that, and I'm like, none of that was in the movie, <laughs> you know? I mean, none of the whole well, thing of him being... In this- fact, the exact opposite was in the movie. <laughs> right. I did appreciate that. I think it was, was it the extended edition of The Return of the King where they did insert that scene, though, with Thormir and Faramir, where you did at least Yeah, see- like the flashback. Yes, yes. yes. and you yeah. at least were presented with what Faramir actually is, even though the theatrical editions, we never actually see that character. Well, that's sort of a problem I have with a lot of the things they cut for the theatrical editions. Yeah. I haven't watched the theatrical editions since Sended Editions came out. So. You, know, you guys were talking about the end of The Two Towers, and I was like, I have no idea how it ended, because I just watch them all together. <laughs> right. Yeah, I actually do the same thing. I usually just go right into the next one. But I'll always remember watching The Two Towers in the movie theater, which is a whole movie yeah. about we've got to get to Isengard and confront Soromon. And, you know, you have the battle with the Ents, and okay, it ends there basically. And then Return of the King starts and Gandalf, this is theatrical, and Gandalf's just like, Sormen is defeated, let's go. And you're like, wait a minute, what? Yeah. What? I yeah. mean, yeah, okay, in the extended edition, we have, you know, some scenes with Sormen there in Return of the King and his death and everything else, but it's like, it made no sense for moviegoers. Nope. You know, watching those three in sequence, it's just like, what? I mean, why is Gandalf so certain that Sauron is defeated? You know, I mean, like, can he just leave the tower? You know. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, yeah, they're, they're, anyway. <laughs> the other thing, and again, I know it sounds like I'm just harping on the movies here, but there is one thing that also filled me with somewhat of the same rage of Angie beyond the character assassination of Faramir. Which is Gimli as comic relief. Oh, yeah. Reading the books, Gimli is probably my favorite character. And Gimli not only has some of the best lines in the whole story, but you never get the impression that Gimli is this bumbling fool that, you know, can, you know, barely handle his own while Legolas is like God's gift to fighting. <laughs> That can surf on shields and, you know, fire five arrows at the same time. That hair, though, Nathan, it's got to flow. <laughs> That's right. You know, and so the thing is, and I get it. I mean, it's 
certainly Orlando Bloom and an elf is, you know, a prettier, you know, kind of thing. And so they accentuate, you know, uh, you know, something, you know, short, stout guy, you know, it's not very, you know, visually, you know, nice or whatever. But it's like, they could have easily given Gimli, like, some scenes of, you know, okay, so Legolas is shooting people with five arrows and whatnot. Have Gimli cleave some works in two or something. Show him as being, like, this powerful guy in the battle. Sometimes, I mean, they mention that their kills are the same, but the movie never well, really shows you book. Gimli being a bad... At- well, I'm sorry, what? Gimli won in the book by one, I believe. Right, yeah. right. But they're even... In- <laughs> uh, right, but the movie sometimes mentions that their kill counts are about equal, but they never actually show Gimli doing the legwork. And in fact, there's even the scene where they're trying to run after the orcs that have taken Merian Pippin, and... Gimli's like panting behind them like oh dwarves are good sprinters blah 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 and it's like in the book it's like no Gimli's the one that they're like man I wish I had the stamina of this guy you know like you know because Gimli's the one that can keep running you know without any effort yeah I felt like you're going to make a pairing out of anyone in the Lord of the Rings so I think it should much more so be Legolas and Gimli than Sam and Frodo. <laughs> that's so true (laughs) okay no but also to your point though about the comedy of Gimli Nathan I personally felt the whole Marion Pippin like those two actors and the way their characters were written I felt felt those were super on point and uh, that was enough comedy for me like I it was fine I I don't understand why they had to throw in stuff with Gimli right no I I, yeah I completely agree with that because I mean and I love John Rhys-Davies He's one of those fantastic character actors that you see in lots of different roles, you know, stretching about, you know, 30, 40 years, uh, might be 30, but, you know, and, and I think he was a great choice for Gimli, but the lines that they were giving him and just the way he was depicted was always this sort of bumbler. And it just annoys me because I read the books and Gimli is a deadly foe that you don't want to, you know, uh, trifle with. Yeah, I kind of thought they'd have him like single-handedly holding the door at Helm's Deep or something. Like it seemed like the easiest way to do, to make him impressive was to give him feats of that obviously nobody else would be able to do. And it's like they just skipped that entire, you just yeah. lost over it. Mm-hmm. Going off of the portrayal of Gimli, too, it just kind of refreshed me on what you were saying earlier about how the movies did kind of try to remove the class system. And there's no mm-hmm. indication in the movies at all that almost everybody in the Fellowship is part of a noble line of their people. That's true. I mean, you don't even find out who Legolas's dad is unless you go and watch The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. And in the books, it's very clear that that's who that that Legolas's dad is the Elven King of Mirkwood, mm-hmm. and Gimli comes from a noble line himself. And they only briefly mention it that oh, my cousin once ran the halls of Moria or something like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they down they could have even just exemplified his noble lineage too to give a little bit more emphasis on the character that he had. Do you think but it's I a problem with like portraying silly. dwarves? Because I found the same problem with The Hobbit when um, the, uh, oh gosh, and I forgot the name, the one the, riding the pig that showed up. But it almost seems that was very bumbling as well. It's almost like mm-hmm. Peter Jackson has a rough time striking a chord between throwing in some humor and just kind of throwing the dwarves mm-hmm. under the bus. Don't get me started on Radagast, who isn't a dwarf, but that portrayal. And I get, he's barely in the stories. There is very little characterization to go on. And while, you know, Sylvester McCoy is a very funny man, I just felt like his version of Radagast was... 
Ugh, I, Angie, though, I agree with you. I was actually wondering that when The Hobbit came out and I was watching this and I was like, some of these guys just look like, I don't know, some of them just look like really tough, buff men to me. They don't look like what I thought Dora was supposed to look like compared to the old movies. And it, I, it's yes. almost and <laughs> Feely and Feely were all uncomfortably handsome for being dwarves. Yeah, I was like, well, <laughs> why, are, why are these dwarves like, why am I attracted to these dwarves? It's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> I had those same thoughts. I'm like, wow, are Feely and Keely actually just short elves? Holy <laughs> The shallow part of me was really happy they didn't put a prosthetic on Aiden Turner, though. <laughs> he <laughs> him keep his own nose. Yeah, but although, at least with The Hobbit, I get the fact of when you have 12 dwarves that you've got to deal with, that you have to differentiate them somehow. They can't all be just stout about the same height with beards. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they had right. to sort of visually differentiate them far more to let us know who, as it is, I still can't keep track of who all 12 of them are. Well, I'd probably have either. to watch it a whole lot more. I can't either. <laughs> right. I'm like, wait a minute. Bomber's easy. <laughs> you know, Thorin's easy. You know, a lot of the other ones. Which one's and which one's Keely? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really didn't be that, that Tolkien did give them all similar names. Yeah, no, I know. You have been listening to the 42 cast, copyright 2020. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42 Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.